0: Greetings, grace, and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Neil Pressa from the Village Community Presbyterian Church in Rancho Santa Fe, California, and welcome to our Bible study, Lesson 4 on this week of January 31st, 2021, as we look at our continuing Bible study series in Paul's letter to the Romans. Today, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 30. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious and loving God, we're grateful for all the ways in which you reveal yourself to us in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. We thank you, O Lord, for this continuing Bible study series in Romans. As you speak to us through your word, might you, O Lord, grant us faith, hope, and love. Teach us, O God. Grant to us the work and wisdom of your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. Help us, O God, to understand your word, to receive and trust in your word, to be changed by your word, and to follow and live your word. For we ask these things in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone says, Amen. Let us hear and read together from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 30. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under the power of sin, as it is written. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all Who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. He did this to show His righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Friends, This is the word of God for the people of God. Holy wisdom, holy words. And everyone says, thanks be to God. These past four weeks, we've been looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Rome. The entire letter to the church at Rome is about God. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about God's people. It's about God's intention for all humanity, for all humanity, for the entire world, Jews and Gentiles. It is a letter just similar to other of Paul's letters of his concern to number one, to speak about the power of God unto salvation in Jesus Christ, to proclaim that Christ crucified and Christ resurrected is our salvation. Jews and Gentiles, and for the entire world. Number two, to really impress upon his readers and hearers that all of us have sinned, Jews and Gentiles, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as we'll see later. Number three, that because of God's great salvation and revelation and redemption and reconciliation in Jesus Christ, we therefore ought to respond with love, with thanksgiving, with humility, with confidence. And number four, his other prevalent concern in Romans and in other of his letters is the relationship of Jews and Gentiles. As the early church in the, in the first century, after Jesus' ascension, as the apostles who are proclaiming the gospel, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, the Christian church, which was quite young at that time, was trying to understand what is the relationship of Jews and Gentiles in terms of the covenant. And so, as in this chapter, in this letter, and in other letters of the Apostle Paul, he wants to, as is with the early church writings, wants to say very clearly that the same faith that we proclaim the same faith that is called forth from gentiles and from and from Jews and for Jews is the same that we are all called to trust in God through Jesus Christ in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and so that is the prevalent concern of the apostle Paul in his letters and this letter to the Church at Rome, and in this chapter, as we'll see. Of course, we're using the Holy Bible and some resources that I put in your outline. We pastors are, of course, using um, the late Paul Ochtemeyer's commentary, uh, Romans from the Interpretation Series. I've also consulted uh, the uh, Fine Book, a recent publication by my good friend, uh, Dr. Beverly Roberts-Gaventa, who teaches at at Baylor University. Of course, N.T. Wright. And he has this uh, wonderful study guide on Romans, and the questions that I have in your outline are uh, drawn from and adapted from his, his study guide. Uh, Karl Barth, the late uh, Reformed Swiss theologian of the 20th century. Uh, Karl Barth, um, one of his uh, main uh, books, in addition to the church dogmatics, is his commentary uh, titled The Epistle to the Romans. And then I have a little section here on the outline on glory, on, on what is meant by God's glory, uh, drawing from um, one of my late colleagues, a uh, Methodist scholar um, who uh, joined the eternal uh, communion of saints, um, Professor Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Rainwright, who taught for many, many decades at uh, at Duke Divinity School. He's a a systematic theologian and a liturgy scholar. And so he has some something to say about glory and our understanding of glory. And so those are some of the resources as we look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 30. And the title of this uh, lesson that I uh, put here is uh, Universality of Sin, God's Righteousness, and Christ's Redemption. That sin is universal, that God's righteousness is universal and comprehensive, and that Christ's redemption is comprehensive, is is pervasive in what Christ has done, not only for us individually, but for indeed for all of humanity and all of creation. You know, the uh, Greek word as translated in our English Bibles as all, translated as all, is the Greek word "pas"? Uh, that is uh, pi, alpha, sigma. From "pas," we derive such words as "pandemic." Pandemic, like the global health pandemic we're all uh, we're all facing now, right? The COVID-19 coronavirus. And what is a pandemic? Or even think of panorama. Panorama a panorama is the wide horizon right that you see the entirety of the of the view pandemic is a health condition like coronavirus that is that is present across the population across demographics across the world Pan is all right all and so in verses nine through 18 of chapter three, pas is used right there at the outset to talk about the question that the Apostle Paul uses. And by the way, the way that the Apostle Paul writes this section, he uses a lot of questions, right? He asks, what then, are we any better off? He uses the Socratic method because what he's doing in this letter and in this chapter is answering some objections from some of his opponents, and so he's anticipating, or he's heard some of their objections, some of their some of their own questions, and so right here from the get-go, he says, "Are we any Are we any better off? Are are Jews or Gentiles any better off? Is there any advantage or disadvantage to one and all?" And he answers that, "No, not at all, because all of us, without qualification, without exception, we all." We all are under the power of sin. It is universal. It is comprehensive. The power and presence of sin is in all of our hearts, individually, communally, in our systems, in our organizations, in everything, right? That it is so universal and comprehensive. And so, He then goes on to quote from Psalm 53 verses 1 through 3 and Psalm uh, chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. And so verses uh, 11 through 18 describes that as the psalmist reflects upon what is the position of those uh, who don't listen to God or who don't want to understand God or who think that they're that the words that they speak from their lips and on their tongue are their own. And that our lives are prone to deception, to envy, to pride. He describes there in verse 15 that our feet are swift to shed blood. We're we're prone to violence. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who is he describing? He's describing there that when we have a tendency, all of us, without exception, when we have a tendency to go wayward from God, it is it is like we don't fear God. And even though that we may not be um confessed atheists, is there such a thing as functional atheists? That we function, we we live lives as if as if there was no God, as if you know we claim that we have our rights to Say what we want to say and do what we want to do. And that was the um the way that is expressed here in the Psalms. Um, that, and I invite you to read Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. That type of life is called foolish. The fool says that in their hearts and on their lips. And so, without exception. All of us, Jews and Gentiles, every single human being is under the power of sin. And so, he says there in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. All of us are are accountable to God. All of us belong to our Creator and Maker. And we have to, um, we are responsible for our actions. We are responsible for our lives. We are under um, the Law of God because God desires um, us to live um, to live according to His commandments, His desire for us, and so on and so forth. John Calvin, a great 16th century uh, theologian, uh, described that there are three uses of the law, three dimensions of the law. Number one, the law is a mirror. Uh, the law is a mirror as it as it reflects to us, what God, uh, who God is, it's a mirror of God uh, that the law reflects the righteousness of God, reflects the goodness of God, God's desires. Number two, Calvin said the law restrains us from evil. The law is intended to restrain our conduct, our our behavior. And number three, the law is intended to guide believers to 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 guide followers of God in the way that we ought to live honor your father and mother do not lie do not steal uh, do not murder etc etc and so those are the three uses of the law to reflect um, God's character to restrain uh, bad behavior bad conduct and to show us how to live in accordance with uh, with the ways of Jesus Christ but as we know in our own life and in, and in the lives around us and in, and in the testimony of scripture, we see it in the news, we read it, the law is unable to make us good. It may, um, it may circumscribe, it may teach us how to behave, sort of like you know when we parents tell our kids, okay, do this or do that, we only corral behavior for a time but it doesn't fix the heart. And so verses 19 through 20 um, says that the law, you know, uh, doesn't do that. It can't fix the heart and we are still held accountable um, to God. And so it goes on to verses 21 through 26. What is God's solution? How does God rectify? How does God correct the problem? And the apostle Paul goes on to describe that God's solution, God's righteousness. Now, righteousness here is uh, righteousness. When we speak about the righteousness of God, this is God's disposition, God's desire to correct, God's desire to right the wrong, R-I-G-H-T, to right the wrong, to make the relationship of humanity and God right. Right? So when we speak about the righteousness, uh, God is righteous because God desires in himself, by his wisdom, by his love, by his character, to right the relationship, to reconcile the relationship. So when we say that someone is righteous, a righteous person, it's someone who wants to be in a positive relationship with God. Therefore, an unrighteous person is one who doesn't, who wants to be separated from God, who wants to do it their own way, right? So uh, So to use the term righteous is to say that we want to be in a positive relationship with God. Well, God is righteous because God desires uh, to be in a relationship with us and desires us to be in a relationship with God, to enjoy God forever. And the act of making things right is called to be justified, to be justified. God is making us right, making us right um, by by correcting what went wrong. And the solution? God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's what the Apostle Paul talks about in verses 21 through 26, that Jesus Christ, who is part of the law, but is above the law. All right? Jesus Christ is both. He is through whom uh, God spoke the word. Uh, Jesus Christ is the lawgiver himself, but he himself also interprets the law he himself is the one who fulfills the law so he's both apart from the law he is subjected to the law he does follow the law remember he he said that i came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it he said that in the gospels but he himself is attested by the law the prophets and the law the word of god attested to jesus christ Um, and so Jesus Christ is himself the righteousness of God, as he says there in verse 22. And that that solution, God's solution, Jesus Christ, um, is apprehended through faith. Faith means to trust, right? To trust in God, to trust in, in God's desire, to trust in God's solution, to trust in Jesus Christ. And note there in verse 23, continuing this notion of the universality of sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, Jews and Gentiles, all of humanity, we have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, glory, Professor Wainwright talks about glory um, in his in his book in a section there, and glory has to do with worship. Glory is about the presence of God on earth and in creation. And for us, in, as us believers, the glory of God is the character of God. The character of God being reflected as we are made more and more in the likeness of God, the character of God shining forth as we are conformed more and more as we mature in the Word of God, as we mature in our relationship with God. And so, verse 23 says, we have fallen short of God's character, we have fallen short of God's reputation, God's reputation, God's name, all in creation, we have fallen short of that. Why? Because of sin. And so, Glory, being connected to worship, right? God's worship, the worship of God. Notice there in verse 24 through 26, uses worship language. God has presented. God has given us a gift. God has offered a gift. We offer a gift to God of faith. God has offered His Son, Jesus Christ, verses 24 through 26. There's some Old Testament language there, atonement. God in Jesus Christ, God offers His Son, Jesus Christ, as the atoning, bloody sacrifice. Atonement, remember the Feast of the Atonement? It's in order to take care of the sins of the community. Uh, atonement is at one God is in solidarity with us. Jesus Christ is offered as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. That's worship language. Jesus is being offered to us. And for us and it says there at the end of verse 25 he had passed over the sins previously committed Jesus Christ his blood his sacrifice his death his life his death resurrection uh, is that solution is that worshipful act and it says here in verse 26, it was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who, who has faith in Jesus. He, he makes right. And what makes it effective? Faith, trust in God, in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, verses 27 through 30, what then ought to be the response? The apostle Paul anticipates the question. Can we boast? Can we boast about this, that we're... Uh, whether Jew or Gentile, that we have believed in Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. That believing the work of faith is not our own work. It's not something that we can muster up. It's not something that we can manufacture. It is a gift from God. This entire work is a gift from God. And therefore, so what's the response? Thanksgiving, humility, joy, love, confidence. Confidence in what God has done. That we... Jews and Gentiles, the entire humanity is to worship God, right? And to be humble, to be humbly confident and to be confidently humble. What is at stake here is who is your Lord? Who will you follow? To whom or to what do you give ultimate meaning, ultimate significance and devotion? This is about being under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord who has redeemed us, who has saved us, who has reconciled us to God, making our relationship right with him and with one another. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Most gracious and loving Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for redeeming us in Jesus Christ. Oh God, though all of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory, we thank you that you provided your Son, Jesus Christ, for the life of the world. Help us, O oh God, to live confidently, to live humbly, to live with thanksgiving as we offer ourselves to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.